Welcome to Elevate Louisiana's Engage Videocast. Elevate Louisiana was founded in 2020 to empower women leaders throughout Louisiana by connecting and educating them on the challenges impacting our state with data-driven nonpartisan solutions to make a better future for Louisiana. Hello there, I'm Julie Stokes with Elevate Louisiana. In today's Engage Videocast, I'm speaking with Robert Travis Scott, the outgoing president of the Public Affairs Research Council of Louisiana, or as we'll refer to it, PAR, on his career and the trajectory of Louisiana, as well as Stephen Procopio, who is the incoming president of PAR. Um, we're excited to have both of them here with us today. Um, Robert Travis Scott became the president of PAR in January of 2011. He's got 40 years of experience dealing with public policy issues as not only the head of PAR, but a journalist, researcher, commentator, analyst, and nonprofit manager. And Stephen just recently was named president. He joined the Public Affairs Research Council in 2014 after serving as chief of staff at the Louisiana Department of Administration and as director of research and accountability for the Lieutenant Governor's Office and also for the Department of Cultural Recreation and Tourism, which kind of fit together. Um, he received his undergraduate and graduate degrees in political science from LSU and his doctorate in political science is from Indiana University. I'm kind of curious about that. Um, <laughs> well, I, 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 I guess we could start by saying that Robert, for sure, you've seen a lot of sausage get made in Louisiana. <laughs> and you know, I guess with the history, you, you've watched for so long now in this state that we live in. And you know, what are some of the big things that you've seen us get right? And what are the some some of the things that as you leave, you're like, gosh, we, we didn't get that done yet. Well, uh, you know, yeah, I've seen a lot of sausage made, especially if you go back to when I was uh, the Capitol Bureau Chief, working right out of the Capitol uh, in Louisiana, uh, in the legislature, and then adding that on to par. Yeah, there's been, uh, there've been some times when the process is something you're really proud and excited to see. I mean, let's face it, you know, this process we have of representative democracy, it's messy. And uh, it, it doesn't always uh, work. In fact, most of the time it doesn't work very well, but it is probably the best system, you know, that has yet to be invented <laughs> for this. And when you see it work and you see consensus come together, uh, it can be pretty inspiring, uh, you know, when, 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 when that system produces something that everybody can get really enthused about and realize they're doing the right thing. Um, but, uh, uh, I, I'm really happy to see uh, the amendment passed, amendment number two. Uh, I thought that was a highlight. This is something that uh, you, Julie, have worked on, uh, very similar types of legislation in the past. It's something that PAR has worked on uh, and made recommendations on for many, many years. Um, and whereas it, it, it probably wasn't the ideal piece of legislation that PAR would have written, uh, it was still uh, a giant step forward uh, in uh, both for the individual income tax for getting a really low, low rate compared to other states that have an income tax and also starting to whittle away at that franchise tax, which is, of course, a, a toxic tax that we wanted to see uh, eliminated eventually, but we, we've started to make real progress towards uh, working on that tax as well. And in fact, the approach that they had to that was pretty much a par approach 
uh, going back several years. So those are just a couple of things I would say. Uh, it, it's 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 exhilarating when it works, and um, and of course, but our usual attitude toward it is uh, uh, not surprised uh, when it produces a lot of needless acrimony and lack of progress. Yeah, and it was funny because I was so sure going into this election and just, you know, to clarify for people that might be listening to this in the future, we went into this election that occurred last Saturday with four constitutional amendments on the ballot. The one that passed was to swap the federal income tax deduction for lower rates in, you know, personal income tax and also corporate income tax and it also worked to alleviate um, a lot of, of franchise tax so I, I really thought that one was going to be the hard one to pass and that the other ones would be like easy <laughs> and ironically the other three failed in a spectacular way and uh, the one that I thought would be harder actually passed um, you know if you'd call it easily but relatively easily um, the other one was sales tax streamlining um, because we have all of these disparate collectors in 54 parishes or something like that, plus the state of Louisiana also as a collector. And I was really surprised when that one didn't come together. Um, and I'm just wondering, what do you, what y'all's take? Well, you, well, you know, Julie, the old saying, uh, one of these days, the people of Louisiana will get good government and they're not going to like it. And I think they had an opportunity to take a step forward with that. Uh, and they didn't. Of course, there was a, you know, a, a lot of hesitancy. We know in New Orleans, uh, the mayor came out against it. That counted for a lot of no votes um, on that, which really made the difference uh, statewide. So uh, we'll see what happens in the future. They're going to have to come back to it. Either the courts are going to come back to it or the legislature will come back to it. But we're such an oddball on this and not in a good way that eventually it's going to have to be fixed. Yeah, it, it was kind of hard to watch. Stephen, what do you think? I think all constitutional amendments are hard to pass. Uh, there's an inherent bias uh, against them. And I, I don't necessarily think that's a bad thing. Uh, you want to change your constitution slowly. And in addition, it's dealing with taxes. Uh, and then the cynicism builds even more. And so I think that's why you see only one of these passed. And honestly, I think that most likely to do because people interpret it as a tax cut. And, and it would technically be a reduction in taxes, uh, though it's far more about the reforms, about making a simpler, uh, fair, more stable tax system. Uh, but most people get a tax code out of it. So I think that's probably what carried day is my you know, back of the envelope you know, quick take. Yeah, it was genius wording. <laughs> <laughs> the wording on that one was genius. Um, you know, to both of you guys, is it, is, since it is so hard to pass these constitutional amendments, should Louisiana be looking at moving to kind of that uh, constitutional ballot proposal system that some states have developed where people, citizens can go put things on the ballot? I see Robert is not a No, fan. no. First of all, the whole assumption is wrong to begin with. It says it's so hard to get constitutional amendments passed. Well, I mean, yeah, you need a two-thirds vote in the House and Senate to get them passed. But once they go out on the ballot, about two-thirds of amendments pass okay this time around only one fourth of them passed and but uh, a lot of the constitutional amendments you see are like minor property tax breaks uh, for certain classes of individuals and those all pass swimmingly uh, and that's why you see a large number we've had over 200 amendments to the you know the constitution so it, it, I, it yes it's hard to get them on the ballot uh, yes, it is, I would say, hard to get them passed, but, but two-thirds of them passed, so, I, you know, I, I, I think that's a pretty good 
pretty pretty good record. Uh, Carr has a, a part one and part two on Louisiana constitutional reform uh, that you can find you know on our website, and it looks uh, at uh, the different approaches that could be taken to uh, fixing the Constitution, uh, to doing a constitutional convention if necessary, uh, and what is in the Constitution we want to change. One of the issues we addressed was this notion of a sort of citizen referendum, which uh, a lot of states have, almost half the states have some form of this. And uh, I don't necessarily agree that this uh, gives, I'm, I'm not quite sure how this fixes the Constitution. In fact, you could have a, a bizarre situation in which uh, a petition comes up, it's passed, and you could, you could pass a, an amendment that actually is contradictory uh, to uh, the, the Constitution itself, if not statutes that are in place. And that's one of the reasons you have a representative system here in Louisiana that most people like, uh, is, is because when you pass something like that, you, you have staff and people and you have a, a vetting process, a public vetting process and debate process where you can amend it uh, and, and move it forward and try to improve it as you go along. Uh, and try to make sure it's not in conflict with virtually everything else. So I, I think that's a problem. I think the, uh, the other thing that I would say that would prevent this from happening is if, if we do have a citizen referendum, I will personally come back to Louisiana to try to pass a referendum to take uh, the, the redistricting process away from the legislature and give that to some kind of a special commission. I don't know why the legislature would want to give up that power, but we've seen this happen in other states that have these referendum uh, systems. Uh, in, those, in several of those states in the last few years, you've seen citizens rise up, they, they get the thing passed, and guess what? They don't like the legislature doing this, and, uh, and, and they get that passed and take that power away from them quickly. They'll take a lot more power away from the legislature, too. They'll take a lot of budgeting power away from them uh, if this were to happen. We've seen this happen in Colorado. I could go on. Uh, it, it's, it, I don't think it, it's a good fit uh, for Louisiana. Uh, we don't think, I don't think it's good constitutional policy. I don't think it would play out in a sound way uh, in the long run. Yeah, well, and you, you kind of bring up one of the things, um, well, two things. First of all, the Constitutional Convention, and then secondly, I want to circle back to redistricting, but what do you guys think about a Constitutional Convention? I mean, when you look at the size and the detail of our Constitution, we sure do have a whole lot of stuff in there. So I definitely think we need constitutional reform, but this is one of the things we've talked about. It's not necessarily has to be through a Constitutional Convention, as we just saw, you know, this month. We passed major uh, tax reform, uh, individual income tax reform, through a constitutional amendment. And you can continue to push tax reform that way. That's not saying I'm opposed to a constitutional amendment. If, if you, know, you can go through, and it could probably solve a lot of problems. But that, I don't think, I think it's most important to not wait on a constitutional convention. If something comes out, Carl will be there pushing the good reforms. But, but if not, it's going to continue like just had. Uh, and uh, you know, there are lots of things we can do before we get to a constitution. I, I felt that exact feeling in the legislature because people would say, well, we don't want to do that. We want to wait for a constitutional convention and, and broad sweeping reforms. And I'm like, if we can get one or two things passed, I might actually believe that that would possibly be true. But we can't even get one or two things passed. So this is exciting that we at least got the one thing passed. And I don't see them giving up on that sales tax streamlining. I see that coming back up. and. 
in, in the near future. You think so too? Well, you know, it, we're a very strange state. I mean, we have in our constitution uh, the obligation to allow each parish to have its own collector of sales tax. Um, I, nobody else does that. And so you have to go to the constitution in order to get that kind of streamlining uh, change. Yeah, yeah. The, I mean, you're thinking about number two, you had essentially another version of this uh, in before and we had versions on the ballot and they didn't pass but you know eventually they do pass i think long term good policy will win out there are some problems in terms of getting it passed in terms of the politics and honestly just getting trying to get people to understand it people citizens don't have to deal with sales tax collection they go they make their you know purchase and then it's someone else's problem and so you have to explain to them the whole system and it's just going to take more, more education to make people understand uh, what's going on and how cumbersome this is. Yeah, you're right, Steve. So here we are at the precipice of redistricting. And um, certainly our legislature does have control over redistricting when it comes to not only congressional districts and the, and the Supreme Court districts in Louisiana Supreme Court, but they also have jurisdiction over their own redistricting. So they get a say in how their own house district looks. How does that compare to other states? I mean, is that kind of half of them do that or none of them or all of them? How's that go? State legislatures, uh, you know, more than often are the ones that are making these decisions and either they're making the decisions or they're approving a decision that's made by some independent commission. However, there you've seen uh, a growing trend over the years of, of more states sort of adopting a more so-called independent uh, commission approach to getting these things done. It, there, there's almost as many varieties as doing this as there are states. But yeah, most most cases it's the legislature that's uh, uh, going to be going to be making the decisions on itself and on the congressional seats, and also uh, the the board of education and the public service commission. And now, interestingly, whether they will take on the Supreme Court and do redistricting for that one, because that's been that's been a a that hasn't been really truly redistricted in a long time, and it's way out of proportion for population. Uh, in terms of uh, the population of the smallest versus the largest district is, is, is way out of proportion. So there's a lot of interest in trying to, to do something with that. And what's the reason behind that? Why hasn't that um, been something that has been done when the others were done? Well, uh, when, when, you, uh, for, when you have representative seats, like for the legislature and for Congress, um, it's, it's, it's really the law that you have to have to try to have a one man one one vote one person one vote uh, approach and that your districts have to be pretty close to the same size they have to be painfully close to the same size for congress and pretty pretty darn close for the state legislative seats um the uh, judicial elected seats are, are not uh, have never been seen in the same way by guess who the courts <laughs> so uh, you know they, they've been given uh, uh, they've been given a pass so to speak on trying to have proportional districts um, and so what we've seen uh, with the change in population over time and uh, a reluctance to redistrict the Supreme Court uh, it has uh, it has made it more difficult but you also have the added problem that uh, those seats are staggered and when, when we come in and we vote uh, a new Congress it's every two years, it's everybody in Congress. So for the legislature uh, in, in here in, in, in Baton Rouge, it's everybody every four years. And, and so 
uh, it makes it a little easier to redistrict because you know what point of time you're redistricting from. The Supreme Court has staggered seats. And so there have to be a lot of extra steps and grandfathering in uh, that, that has to be made as part of that. So it's not as easy as, as, uh, as it might sound. Well, that's interesting. I, I really, I, I actually never got to go through a redistricting. So I'll be watching the sausage get made on that one. I mean, what are the what are the the things that the people should be looking out for when it comes to redistricting? Steve, you want to take a crack? Yeah, at that? I mean, there's there's all sorts of um, important values that go into uh, redistricting. Uh, you want to have um, you know, minority representation. You want to have compactness to make sure you don't have some crazy looking district and you want to make sure that, you know, uh, entities are represented. So sometimes you want to make sure everyone that lives in a particular area has a representation, which is similar to compactness. You, um, you want to have competitiveness is also something uh, that is valued. You want to make sure that these aren't just super safe districts. Um, to a lesser extent, at least the court has found that, you know, incumbency is a value. I don't know that R particularly values that. Um, but that is something that the court has found that, that can be valued. So there are lots of different things in terms of how you balance it all. And you can't have all of them everywhere. Um, so they, they, you know, the more, for example, you try to make sure uh, minorities are represented, the more you fight compactness. Uh, so really, it's going to be trade-offs no matter what the end result is. Mm -hmm. I think about competitiveness as a goal. And when I think of that, I think about somewhat moderation. Because if it's competitive, then that typically will mean that there's a blend of more left-leaning and more right-leaning people in one district. Um, how do you see this factor into it? And have you seen that change over the years? And I'll boot that change question over to, to Robert, but have you yeah. seen change over the decades? Yeah, I, I think you have to be really careful, um, you, you know, about making competitiveness, you know, a high value in, in what you're doing with this. And 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 some of these independent commissions cross country, they, you know, they sort of write the rules of how are we going to go about this? What are our values? And you have to really sort of walk through what your values are and what priority you give it. If competitiveness is a really high value, then you're going to get some really gerrymandered districts. Um, because uh, people tend to sort of self-select themselves into their own geographic areas uh, of like-minded people. And so if you, you, some, there may be some cases where you don't want to make it, I, my view is this is don't go out of your way to make it anti-competitive, right? I mean, that's, that's, that can gerrymander also, but don't go out of your way to make it competitive if, if gerrymandering is a result and you're, you're, you're trumping a lot of other really important values. The most important thing to me in this whole uh, redistricting, uh, Julie, is really the process and whether the process is transparent, whether the uh, citizens really feel like they're having an engagement in this, and, and probably even more importantly, whether communities feel like they have a voice in this. Because really, when you, you look back at redistricting where people might grumble or be unhappy about it, uh, a lot of times it's the community feels like it didn't quite get the districts that it wanted to to really uh, represent it. And um, uh, so I think it's important in this process for the communities to speak up, the chambers of commerce to speak up, uh, and for people to participate, you know, in the process and to do it in a way that uh, is amenable to the legislative process. They have set up a system for people to submit plans. 
and it has to be done a certain way. <laughs> and uh, I think if citizens can get on board with that and get involved, but this is very important. And that when anybody submits a plan, they're supposed to say what it is they're trying to achieve. What is, it your, what is your goal here? And the citizens who submit plan need to do that as well. They need to step forward and say, well, here's my redistricting, but here's my set, of, here's the set of values that I think are best for Louisiana. And this is what drove me to, to draw the districts this way. Uh, when I asked the computer for this value, it came up with these districts. You know? <laughs> so I think if that comes out in the process, you can have a really interesting discussion because it really is a discussion about values, what's important. And I'll tell you, geography is not fair. Okay, geography in Louisiana is a problem from the very beginning. I mean, you know, what happened, you know, there, there, there are vast areas where there are no people, then all of a sudden there are a lot of people, and then, you know, there's a lot of water, <laughs> you know, does the bayou separate a community, Julie, or does it unite it? You know, these types of questions that, that come up. Uh, and, uh, and I think, and I've, I've done some speaking on this and on our website, I have a, 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 some notes from a talk that people can access and we'll have more out on redistricting, I think, pretty soon. Uh, but uh, uh, it really, really walk through what you think the values are that are important. See, incumbency could have a great value. Um, if, uh, in fact, you know, people are familiar with their districts uh, and uh, they, they've served it well and the people uh, like the knowledge base and the fact that they their person has more seniority um, in the uh, in the legislature, then that can that can be a value, you know. Um, but it's, it really comes down to a question of how much emphasis you place on each of these. Well, I'm kind of curious about that, and and I would ask, you know, to your knowledge, either one of you guys, um, what are the major groups out there right now? that are working on this redistricting in Louisiana that we're about to undergo that are, you know, putting their values out and, and going after different plans. What, what groups are the major players in that right now? Uh, well, just partly, I know that the, the sort of regional chambers and whatnot are, are interested in, in getting involved. There's a group called Fair Districting Louisiana that's, uh, that's been very involved. But I think you're gonna see almost any constituent group uh, you know, moving forward, on, you know, the, uh, uh, the Urban League, and um, uh, I think you're going to see groups around the, uh, uh, the Black Caucus and associated right. with them that are going to move forward. I think they've actually tried to make themselves a presence in, in making sure there's someone speaking up and trying to get another um, uh, minority congressional uh, district in all of these, you know, uh, regional meetings that they're having. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would, I would definitely, I've heard about that. And, you know, to, to your point, Robert, uh, when you talked about that um, having the districts be more competitive would result possibly in greater gerrymandering, it's like, I kind of see it opposite, like that, that you know, if, if districts were squares, you'd have Republicans and Democrats in them and different kind of ways of thinking. First of all, you, you probably are not going to have squares in Louisiana. I mean, you have to start with your border first, you know, and you have to work inside from your border. So you're kind of, there are only certain places that even have flat lines, but no, um, I think what you, what you, what you look at is uh, a lot of complications in making something competitive. First of all, how do you know whether it's competitive or not? Are you going to divide up Republicans and Democrats? Well, if you do that, 
and you're not going to get a, a, a very, I think, accurate view of what competitiveness is because there's more Democrats than Republicans, yet we vote more Republican. So you've got a problem from the very beginning. So what they, they propose to do to create competitiveness in some states is to look at, for example, oh, how did people vote uh, in Trump versus Clinton? You know, or how did people vote in Trump versus Biden? And then we're going we're gonna to divide it up that way. Well, I got to tell you, we're getting into a really weird area. You know, when, when you start dividing up how people voted in a presidential campaign and, and calculating what their feelings are about their state legislature, you know, it, that's another reason why I think the competitiveness value and placing that as something really high is a real problem. Just, just, just implementing it in Louisiana alone, trying to figure out what that competitiveness really means in Louisiana, I think, you know, is an issue. So um, I, I'm, I'm, I'm just very skeptical about using it. And I think if you look at the way, uh, if, if you look at a national map or if you look at many state maps, you'll see a lot of blue, you know, in urban areas and you'll see a lot of red in the non-urban areas. Well, if you're gonna make things competitive on that basis, trying to blend the blue and red, well, you're gonna have gerrymandered districts. I mean, it's just, that would be the geography you'd be asking for. Um, so I, I just, you know, we could go on about this, but uh, I, and it, there's a really interesting Supreme Court case, uh, you know, that, that looked at some of these issues uh, and, uh, um, I'd, you know, be glad to cite that for you and we could talk about it more. But I, I do think that um, the legislature is going to have its handful just figuring out a lot of the other values that come before competitiveness. Uh, you know, b before they make that a really major one. Again, I would be against sort of intentionally making something anti-competitive. And, and I think that is something that probably is better to focus on. And, and here we have another conflict as well. So you could make things more competitive, uh, but that might undermine minority representation because what you want to do is have, you know, a lot of similar groups together to make sure they're represented. But then that district isn't necessarily competitive. And then because you were moving that, there's probably a lot of, you know, really white conservative areas put together, and those aren't really competitive. So all of these things, there's just no perfect solution to any of them. Uh, you just have to be aware how far you want to go to any, uh, any of these extremes, and it's all going to be a compromise at the end. Mm -hmm. Interesting stuff, and I can't wait to see it play out, um, how it goes. Uh, so one of the other things to kind of change focus uh, for a bit is early childhood education. I know that uh, PAR put out a, an excellent report on early childhood education and care and the important effect that it can have not only on the kids, um, but on the working families and on our economy in general. And it's something that Elevate holds very dear too, to try to find a way to, to move this legislature a little bit to get some of this stuff enacted. So, um, how do we do that? How do we move the needle on this issue? And why is it so important? Sure, Parr is you definitely- the right guy here, Steve's the <laughs> guy on this. <laughs> sure, we, we definitely, Parr is not moving on from early childhood. We have, we have a lot of great stuff that's been done in terms of setting a, a great process of accountability and the right incentives. Uh, it's really, I think, a national model in those areas. What it's not a national model on is actually getting funding. Uh, and that's what needs to improve. Uh, the good news is, is that there's a lot of interest and activity happening at the local level. Uh, you know, New Orleans is definitely a leader in this area, but you also have North Louisiana uh, and the uh, Caddo is putting up independent, you know, philanthropy 
uh, funding, and you can see other areas as well, Ascension. So there's really a lot of activity on a local level, recognizing how important this is. Uh, and is gonna try and support those efforts uh, and make sure you know, we can do what we can to make sure that people have the right information. Um, also, a lot of this is driven by the state incentive fund, which is the early childhood fund, which is gonna put up a, a match for any of the locals, whether it's a local government or local business or uh, local nonprofits. Uh, and then the state's supposed to match that money but they have not really put up the money uh, so far. Uh, and I, I think they're trying to use some uh, federal money, which is a great temporary bridge. But uh, you know, if there's more and more interest here. These really, they really have to solve this. And I think what they've done is just say, well, we're gonna dedicate some gaming funds, or we're gonna dedicate some CBD oils or some other stuff. Basically, whatever bill the legislature wanted to pass, they just said, well, we'll make the, the money go to early childhood. Um, and, and this needs to be a priority. This is a big deal. And they need to just put general fund dollars into it and say, this is a, a, a something that's going to move the needle on a whole host of issues, educational, the economy, health, uh, you know, social services support, all these things can be improved with early childhood long-term. And it, they just need to put money in it and it needs to be actually made an issue. It's going to be tough to do with all this federal dollars, but it needs to get done. And so we're not moving away from this issue anytime soon. That's good to hear because we also believe it's super important to to the future of our kids, families, etc. Um, one of the things that's kind of got us kind of in a holding pattern on exactly how we want to proceed is that there's so much unknown going on right now because of the federal government, the Build Back Better plan would include uh, universal pre-K three, pre-K four would would also allow money for uh, to subsidize more childcare for families as well. So it might dramatically move the needle from what we thought we needed to get funded, which was the eighty six million dollars that seems to never have in, 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 uh, inflation attached to it. Cause it's been eighty six million for at least five years or four years that I'm aware of, and we haven't been able to get anywhere near that. What do you think? I mean, do you think any of that's going to happen? I know we're state, but I mean, it really plays into how we're going to move forward on early childhood. That is a great question everyone's pondering right now. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, it, you're right. It's a federal issue. And if you're looking at Congress, I think if it easily, something like that could pass the House. It's going to have a much more difficult time in the Senate. Um, but that doesn't mean there isn't some trim down version, which has at least some of this money in there. Um, so it's possible. I think from our perspective, what we're really trying to do on this issue is support locals. And so I think that should happen regardless. So, and if, if more federal support comes in, that's great. One thing I, I would be concerned about is if there was any type of federal structure that superseded the accountability programs we had or supplanted them, because I think we have really strong programs and hopefully they're able to work together. Because I think that's really one of the strengths of the program we have here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it, you just end up, I end up wondering when I look at those state matches that might be required by the federal program and you think, gosh, I mean, we think it's 86 million, but it could end up being a number dramatically different than that if we're trying to do a match. And then, you know, floating it out there that we've had administrations that in Louisiana that didn't accept federal money when it was there to be had, could that happen again, you know, where we're, we don't fund the match, you know, so there's a lot of question marks around it, but I agree well, with you. Go we're ahead. not funding the match that we said we would get local. So I, I, yeah, I have serious concerns about that. So I think that's the first and foremost is the state has already put an obligation out there and they are not meeting it. 
uh, that needs to be the number one concern. And then we can deal with the federal match later, but there are locals currently raising money to try and get a draw from the state and the state needs to make sure they uh, honor their obligations. Yeah, well, I, I couldn't agree more. So, you know, that helps and I'll bring those thoughts back to our board, you know, to try to get some movement on exactly which direction we want to head. So, um, I kind of want to wrap up by just hunting it off to Stephen. And what do you think? What's the future of PAR? What's your vision? <laughs> uh, well, I think the first thing is we're not going to change you know, the, the type of research we do, the quality of research, we're still gonna work on things like early childhood, you know, fiscal uh, reform, accountability, transparency, those are hallmarks of PAR, we're not changing any of that. Uh, I do think we're gonna try and really up our game in terms of communication. We're gonna try, in addition to the sort of very detailed reports that we do, which I think are fundamental, we're also gonna try and get uh, more often communicate with people with smaller, uh, easier to digest. We're gonna do more on social media, uh, I, I think there's a lot of different ways we're going to try and approach people. Um, you know, we might have more regional meetings, uh, try and do things, just basically uh, bring ourselves up to where we need to be to communicate with as many voters and citizens as possible. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And making sure that you know, members of the legislature really know um, what you guys have studied and found a data-driven information for that are good answers for Louisiana. Finding a way sometimes for that to become more important than some of the other politics that are out there, you know? No, you know, Julia, people often ask me, what's the most important thing you did in your 11 years as PAR president? And it's very clear the best thing I did was hire Dr. Stephen Professor <laughs> <laughs> as a policy director, because, you know, he's actually qualified to be president of the organization, unlike me. But, um, uh, no, I, I think I'm really excited about where Steve is going. I know that he's, you know, hiring new staff. Uh, he has the, the board of directors, is, which we have had a great board of directors. But, you know, they, through a natural evolution and through my own pushing, they have really reached a point now where uh, it's a new crowd that's in charge. And they are so engaged and so behind Steve. And, uh, and I think between Steve and that engaged board, uh, I, I think you're looking at some really great things uh, from this organization in the near future. Well, I, I think, Robert, you've left the organization in a great spot and, um, you know, just really strong. I think the organization's really strong, you know, in a lot of ways that I think could be very impactful to the community. And I think Stephen, like you said, being a policy person and through and through, um, <laughs> I'm really excited to see what's going to happen for PAR. So I just wanted to have this little talk with you guys and, and talk a little bit about all the policy that's happened over the number of years and where the organization's headed. So I really appreciate you guys sharing with us today. Any closing words? Well, we appreciate you too, Julie. You were um, somehow or another, you managed to be both a compassionate and highly analytical um, and objective, I think, uh, legislator. Uh, really trying to identify the best policies uh, for the state. I mean, we know that because you literally sat down with your spreadsheets with us so many times. And so we knew we knew how much brain power you're putting into it, but we also knew uh, where your heart was and how much you really wanted to do good things for the state. And I think that's evident even after you're out of office, how much you want to do for the state. So 
I, 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 there should be more Julie Stokes uh, in the world, more Julie Stokes involved in politics, and I think we'd have a better, better place to live. Well, thank you. I greatly appreciate that, Robert. Stephen, any concluding thoughts that are not about me? <laughs> oh, wait, I was going to add more. Robert, I couldn't have said it better, so I don't want to repeat it. But yeah, I mean, what you did in the legislature, you, you basically saw come to fruition with Amendment Number Two, and then Elevate. It's just a you know a great organization, and you know doing things like this. So yeah, I got to thank you for inviting us, and can't wait to do more. Well, I'm excited to to have you around and to have uh, the policy that you make. I think y'all do a great job with it. So thank you for being with us today on Elevate's videocast. And for those of you listening and those of you interested in joining Elevate, um, check out our website. It's E-L-L-E-V-A-T-E-L-A.org. So it's Elevate with two L's. Uh, you can see more of our videocasts, podcasts, sign up for membership, and you know, see about the December 14th summit that we're having um, this year. And if you're interested, joining us for that. Um, Elevate's main goal is to bring together Republicans and Democrats together at the same table to be able to talk policy and to see what we have in common, which we found more often than not, we have all a true heart for making this state a better place to work, live, and, and raise a family. So um, thank you so much for being with us today. We appreciate you guys, and thank you for our listeners. And I'm your host, Julie Stokes, and we will see you next time. Mm -hmm.